the memory of that day will live with me forever. It was November the 22nd, 2003. The place was Ann Arbor, Michigan. Just three months earlier, my kids and I had disembarked a plane at Grand Rapids Airport, just the latest in the eternal line of promise seekers to step onto these shores. We were not here because we were huddled masses yearning to be free, but because we had heard the rock and roll, seen the movies, tasted the burgers, worn the Levi's, even met some of the people of this fair land, and we needed to come and see for ourselves if it was all real. And now, three months after beginning the immigrant's dream, November the 22nd, 2003, at Michigan Stadium, I savoured my first taste of American football. I soon discovered this was no ordinary game. This was the University of Michigan versus Ohio State for something called the Big Ten Championship, which mysteriously had 11 teams in it. (laughs) Even more curiously, the winner was to be placed inside a decorative vase. At least, I think that's what they meant when they told me they would get a place in the Rose Bowl. Several ingredients made this exquisite piece of Americana. Paying to park on someone's front lawn was one. (laughs) Entrepreneurs trying to get around the law by calling out they were buying tickets when in fact they were trying to sell them was another. Marching bands, male gymnasts throwing female cheerleaders 20 feet into the air, teams of 80 aside playing a game called football in which only three men on each team actually kicked the ball, 60 minutes filling over three hours. I felt like I was in a Norman Rockwell painting being served a large slice of American pie by Uncle Sam. This was America at its best, I thought, and it was marvellous. The air was thick with excitement and the feeling you get when you know that something amazing is about to happen. The anticipation that we were gathered together for an almost religious experience. I'd never been in a crowd of 120,000 people before. Devotees from all over the state congregating to share food and drink, to cheer the conquering heroes and to relish the defeat of bitter century-old rivals who, for goodness sake, wore buckeyes around their necks. We, I discovered, had a cool-looking, ferocious animal who could bite your leg off with one clasp of its jaws for our mascot. But the thing that was most foreign to me was the reaction of the crowd when the Wolverine scored. Suddenly, I was no longer a spectator, but a participant in the action. 
People around me turned to me and put their hands in the air. After a few seconds, I realised they expected me to slap their hands. One large man I'd never met hugged me. And I was caught up in something bigger than just me. I was part of a fellowship, a brotherhood, a cloud of unnumbered witnesses bound together in celebration and unity, joined by a common passion and a consuming desire. There can be a fine line between sporting events and religious experiences. If we had a neuroscientist here this morning, I suspect she could tell us that when a person is celebrating their team winning a huge game, the same parts of their brain ignite as when they are caught up in religious ecstasy. So let's click through the turnstiles of Stad Jerusalem 1000 BC for the big match. The local star, David, the talented young playmaker, is leading his team into the arena in glorious procession. This moment has been years in the making, hatched in the imagination of the divine coach before these players were even born. This play has been practiced on the training ground in silence and obscurity. And now it's time. It's coming home. The Ark of the Covenant, that is. It's an ancient wooden trophy, about two feet three inches tall and wide, and three feet nine inches long. There are carvings on the sides and a crown on the top, and it has four rings at each end through which poles are inserted so it can be carried without having to be touched by human hand, for it is too holy for that to be permitted. This ark is the greatest of all prizes because of what it contains. Two slabs of stone. Two slabs of stone with writing on them. Two slabs of stone with the writing of God on them. Now think hard. What memory does that jog for you? What two slabs of stone has God's writing on them. Yeah, that's it. These stones are inscribed with the Ten Commandments. Somehow, for maybe as long as three or four hundred years, these tablets bearing the Ten Commandments have been nursed and protected and sheltered in this ark. They are the symbols of God's presence among his people. A reminder of who he is, who they are, and what he demands of them. It is carried into battle wherever the Israelis, Israelites fight. 
And naturally, the enemies try to capture it and destroy Israel's morale. No piece of silverware has ever been so fiercely fought over. No trophy ever so prized. No symbol of triumph ever so glorious. It's Second Samuel 6. It's part five of our summer sermon series on the life of David. And it's no place for neutrals. This is a day of celebration. A day of jubilation. A day on which true loyalties are expressed with passion, singing and dancing. David has at last gained some stability. You'll remember that he has recently been made king, and so you could say he now has a steady job. He has married, he has moved to Jerusalem, and he has settled. These are those fruitful early middle years. His youth is behind him. He's putting down roots, making his mark, producing something that will last. And where better to begin than bringing it home? The ark containing the Ten Commandments, right into the very centre of the nation, the heart of the capital city. This is a passage of passion, a journey of worship. So much so that they'd only gone six steps with the ark when David offers sacrifices. They have miles to go and only two yards into the journey and they stop and worship. But it's not just dinner, there's a show. David discards his royal robes and dances with celebration. His wife, Michael, knows just how humiliating this is. It says, When she saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord, she despised him in her heart. David becomes the first player to learn that if you remove your shirt in celebration of a goal, you receive a yellow card. Passion and sacrifice, sacrifice and passion, they are the secrets of David's worship. And if what we offer this very morning is going to be worthy of the name worship, then we must pour out our own passion and sacrifice. If our worship is real, it will cost us passion and sacrifice. Sacrifice and passion. During our trip to the UK last month, Galinda and I visited three English cathedrals. Two as tourists and one as worshippers. The one where we worshipped, I had popped into once before, because when you're walking through that part of the city of London, you probably should. After all, this was St. Paul's Cathedral, famous the world over for its majestic dome and the comforting silhouette it formed against the night sky lit orange by the devastation of the Blitz. 
as a young, idealistic, religiously zealous visitor to St. Paul's 35 years ago, I was shocked and angered by some of what I saw inside Christopher Wren's masterpiece. I recoiled at symbols which I interpreted as glorifying war. My hackles rose at what I saw as the cross wrapped in the Union Jack. I wanted to do a Jesus and throw some tables. So I shook the dust off my radical teenaged feet and departed wondering how longer, how much longer God would tolerate the apostasy of the Church of England. So when Galind and I stepped through its columns last month, I was still nursing resentful memories of that agitated afternoon. We were there for Evensong, but I feared that what we were about to experience would be an exercise in civic religion. We were running a touch late and from the entrance we could see the procession lining up about 50 yards away. So we bustled up the aisle and snared two seats in the choir where we would be more obvious but hear the music better than the 500 others who had assembled in the nave. And then the procession started and I was blown away Not by the beauty of the music, not by the glory of the 1662 Book of Common Prayer, not by the angels hovering in the dome whom I'm sure were there, but by the reality of it, the passion and the sacrifice. People meant this. The choir meant it and sang it with feeling The clergy meant it and were eager to explain the good news to visitors that they might come to experience the living God and not just enjoy half an hour of high culture. The Scandinavian tourists next to us meant it and knelt, stood and recited the text with a hunger for God etched on their faces. Even the Bishop of London meant it I don't mean that disrespectfully. You see, she was there at the back of the procession, but she took no formal part in the service, led not a word. She was there purely and simply to worship. That, for any clergy person, is remarkable, but for someone as busy as the Bishop of London, it is staggering. Passion and sacrifice sacrifice and passion. You see, you don't have to dance in your underwear like David to show you mean it, although if you do, please do it at home. You can do it in 17th century English in an ancient building. You could do it in a shop front or a warehouse reading words on a projector screen like some of our brothers and sisters in non-denominational churches and lest we get snobbish about it, that is no better or worse than our worship. Passion and sacrifice, sacrifice and passion, they are all that matter. 
So the next time you just don't feel like coming to church, ask yourself, who am I doing this for, myself or God? Sacrifice and passion. The next time you're tempted to grumble that you didn't know or didn't like a hymn, what are you singing for, your, your pleasure or God's? Sacrifice and passion. When someone does something that is too traditional or too ritualistic or too high or too low or too Protestant or too Catholic or too loud or too quiet or too inclusive or too exclusive, stop and ask yourself, whose glory are you here for? Sacrifice and passion. This week, our general convention began a process of liturgical change that will last many years and will touch all parishes. You may have read about it. When Christians discuss liturgical change, things get out of perspective pretty quickly. So let's keep something in mind when we hear this topic mentioned in the next few months and years. The point of liturgy is not to make people happy, be they well-established members or people who are not yet members. The point is not to give people a sense of belonging and comfort or to appeal to their appreciation of creative language or even help them feel included in God's love. Although all of these things are wonderful and all of them will be byproducts of good worship. The one point of worship, towering over all others, is the dutiful response of the creature to the creator. The offering of thanks, praise and adoration in sacrifice and passion. That does not mean that we should not revise the prayer book, and it does not mean that we should. It just means that we should keep it in perspective. It's about God and not us. Passion and sacrifice. May our sport be less like a religious experience and our religion be more like a sporting one. Amen.